Welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. I'm here all the way in Ottawa, Canada, and uh, I have taken the recording equipment uh, to St. Paul's Lutheran Church in downtown Ottawa, and I'm here um, as a guest of St. Paul's and specifically uh, Pastor Luke Thompson. Some of you have uh, will recall that uh, Luke Thompson is um, part of um, our apologetics courses coming up in the summer of 2020 on the campus of Wisconsin Lutheran College. Carrie Keene, our physicist, and I are going to do a, a practical apologetics class June 15th to, to the 19th uh, this uh, summer in 2020, and then we're going to bring in uh, Pastor Thompson, who's going to do Into the Postmodern Wilderness June 22nd to 26th, the next week after that, and so you maybe have heard his name. So before we go any further, um, well, I should say that we are here to mention and to talk about um, his new book that's coming out, and it is titled Your Life Has Meaning, Discovering Your Role in an Epic Story, and really about Ecclesiastes, correct? That Uh, is true. It really just kind of walks you through some main parts of that. Looking forward to that book. Uh, It's going to be coming out uh, very uh, shortly from Northwestern Publishing House. Um, So we'll we'll be talking about that and other things. But before we go any further and get to our disclaimer, uh, Pastor Thompson, just tell us a little about about yourself, where you studied um, and uh, your family and uh, how you serve the Lord here in Ottawa. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, I'm super excited to be with you here. And it's fantastic that you get to be up here with us in Ottawa. Um, I've been doing a lot of things for the last maybe 15, uh, years or so. I started out originally going to school to become a grade school teacher, found out that I didn't like kids as much as I thought I did. And so, uh, moved on from that. I started falling, falling in love with philosophy. There was a professor that I had that did a course on literary criticism and started just reading some really crazy stuff in that, and that really kind of started blowing my mind. And so I transferred out of the teaching program that I was in, and I went instead towards philosophy. And so I went to uh, Wisconsin Lutheran College for a couple of years, and while I was there, I basically took nothing but philosophy courses under Greg Schultz there. And then after that, did a master's degree at Marquette University. And while we were doing stuff at Marquette, I uh, got married um, to my wife, Christine, who really likes philosophy and literature and the liberal arts as well. And we were just really kind of throwing ourselves into a lot, of, a lot of work with campus ministry at that time. And so I immediately, as soon as I got into grad school, had my world blown up again by the Christians that I met there that had this very rich background in apologetics, stuff that I'd never heard of before, guys that I'd never heard of before. And there were these intelligent Christians that just had all of this stuff right at their fingertips. And so I threw myself into that right away as well. But while I was going through my master's program and trying to decide what to do next, we were also just having a huge ball at uh, the church that we were part of there. And we had a great uh, group of leaders there that really pulled us into doing lots of things there. And so we had an opportunity to kind of make a decision at one point if we wanted to continue going into doing PhDs and stuff like that, or if we wanted to to give ministry a try. And so we decided to give ministry a shot. And after that, we then continued studying uh, languages at at, uh, Martin Luther College. And from that, then over to the seminary uh, to do my... my, uh, I guess it's a master's in divinity there. I've become a pastor. But the entire time that we were doing that, I was still involved heavily in campus ministry, especially with apologetics and cultural topics, and then also teaching philosophy at uh, places like WLC, Bethany Lutheran College. And so I taught an awful lot of logic, a lot of intro, things like that, um, but also a lot of apologetics-related stuff. And so that landed us here seven years ago in Ottawa, where we are directly connected with University of Ottawa. They, look, there's a class that's right outside our bedroom window that we can watch. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and this is 
just a super intelligent community that we're in as well, connected to lots of universities, lots of immigrants, people from all over the world, lots of government workers, embassies all over the place. And so we have just been throwing ourselves still into doing just a lot of apologetic stuff. It's a beautiful church in a beautiful setting. And uh, it's been it's been fun to be up here for me. Came in here a couple days ago, and it's been good, and, and meeting a lot of cool people. So, wonderful. I'm going to go with our disclaimer, because we have to do that for legal purposes, mm-hmm. I think. And then we'll come back, and, and we'll take the discussion uh, in a different direction. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We'll be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you are just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. That's a fantastic disclaimer. So did <laughs> did you have a legal team look at that? <laughs> no. This is, um, I'm sure, just Wade uh, made this up because and in his passive-aggressive way. So, Pastor Thompson, we're here to talk about your book, and uh, why'd you start writing this book? What was something that popped into your mind? Why Ecclesiastes? Why all these things? What got you going into this subject? So there's probably two things we could talk about. One is I've been talking about this subject for probably 15 years now. Mm -hmm where in different classrooms, bringing up a lot of the types of things that are in this book. Basically what the book is, is besides working through Ecclesiastes, there's uh, so, I don't know, just, just for example, when Paul preaches on Mars Hill, this is the one template that we have of the way that Paul preaches mm-hmm. and the one that he has to a Gentile audience, mm-hmm. right? And in it, he doesn't once quote scripture. <laughs> Instead, the most he does is he quotes pagan mm-hmm. poets and things like that. And he says at one point, uh, as your own poets have said. And so one of the thoughts behind this book was, it's really, the audience is really for for people that uh, are maybe nominal Christians, exploring Christianity, um, or as kind of a, a way of showing how to do soft-minded apologetics as well. Uh, but the idea is it's really got just tons and tons of examples from philosophy, literature, music, and all these types of things drawn together from my last 15 years of teaching to show how a lot of these kind of cultural artifacts that we have can be useful for an apologist talking specifically about this one topic, uh, the meaningfulness of life, right? So just uh, not to interrupt, but so you said soft apologetics just for our audience, maybe compare hard and soft kind of, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think I heard it first from Montgomery Mm -hmm. and I think that's his, basically his way of, of yeah. trying to talk about the difference between doing, on the one hand, very kind of rigorous, uh, historical, legal, apologetics, philosophical, like just kind of working through syllogisms, right, and things yeah. like that, or arguments versus the type of apologetics that might flow out of uh, discussing works of art, right, or what art tells us. Um, about truth or music, right, or any of these different types of subjects. So the difference between the way that C.S. Lewis did Mere Christianity versus Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. He was doing the exact same project with mm-hmm. both of those. They were both witnesses, right, to his faith, um, a way of, of sharing his faith, but they're just two completely different ways of going about doing it. And really, it's very um, audience-oriented. Who are you talking to? Right. right? Yeah, yep. so am I mm-hmm. talking to a lawyer or maybe um, a chemist on one side, or am I talking to an artist or somebody who is very attuned to music, a musician or whatever, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I want to say that it was not 
maybe not John Stuart Mill or William James, some philosopher where I think Montgomery got that from. He said, there's two kinds of people, hard minded and yep. soft minded mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it's, I think that's helpful that it's, it's audience oriented. Right. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. yeah. And it's not meant to be derogatory, right? One right. way or the other. Um, right. But just there's like our brain operates, you know, maybe if you think like the old classic way, the two hemispheres, right? Which sure. one are you really kind of working with? Left sure. The right side. Yeah, and I've yeah. always thought that too, like, <clears throat> I mean, just, it just, in, this is an everyday life. You can have a very logical argument to, with somebody um, and make the case and maybe a full proof case. And they're like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know, I don't, I don't care. And it's not that they're necessarily being obstinate or whatever. Um, they just think a little bit differently. Yeah. Right. And on the opposite side, they can be, um, people who are not going to believe anything unless it's actually laid out in a very, let's say, scientific or logical manner. Yeah. Yep. So anyway. Right. Or if you're thinking maybe a good example would be the problem of evil, right? There's there's uh, there's the logical and the probabilistic mm-hmm. problem of evil, mm-hmm. which is one thing. And then there's what's called the existential right, or emotional problem mm-hmm. of evil, which is completely different. And if you're dealing with someone struggling with the existential uh, emotional problem of evil, it doesn't matter one bit yeah. what kind of argument you have set up for justifying right. Uh, evil, right? Right, yeah. Uh, and so that's a good difference, I think, between what you would see as, as the soft-minded and the hard-minded apologetics. And so your book generally probably written to people who would maybe be more soft-minded or at least are attuned to that. Is that Would that be accurate? Uh, or you kind of ha- are straddling uh, the fence there and can... Do both. I think it's both. It's just drawing in lots of stuff. So there's lots of philosophy. Okay. Um, there's especially stuff dealing with existentialism. So a lot of Nietzsche and Camus mm-hmm. and guys like that. But at the same time, uh, there's uh, Smashing Pumpkins mm-hmm. and Death Cab for Cutie mm-hmm. and uh, contemporary artists, right, and things like that. Um, sure. So... Mm-hmm. So how how long is your book going to be relevant then if you're making all these cultural <laughs> references? That's a good point. Like I yeah. I love the Smashing yeah. Pumpkins, but yeah. you know we're getting old. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a really good question because there's one section in it which is is kind of an important one where it talks about uh, where I do just a little bit of an analysis on on fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. And so I divide fantasy up into two schools. One you would kind of call the uh, the Oxford school of fantasy, right? So guys like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien created this genre of fantasy as we know it today. But then there's a West Coast school, um, guys like um, H.P. Lovecraft and uh, Robert E. Howard, who did Conan the Barbarian. Mm -hmm. And that's like a completely different atheistic, uh, Mm -hmm. agnostic, nihilistic type of fantasy that, that arose in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the product of that would be something like Game of Thrones. And Mm -hmm. so I I wrote the book. I mean, it's taken a while for it to get printed. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what the ending, you know, was going to be for that. Um, We still don't even have the published books. But, you know, there's a good comparison between Tolkien and George R. R. Martin's works. And I don't know if it's going to (laughs) be even accurate, right, Uh, a couple of years from now. I'm banking on it. Yeah, I do have this feeling, though, seeing because I am not... I am not sci-fi fantasy. I mean, I understand its importance and we'll, and we'll look into it from a, you know, sort of an academic way, but I was never that kind of yep. kid. But some of my daughters are, mm-hmm. and they, they know stuff. So I, I think it does, fantasy does kind of stand the test of time. Yeah. So I think you'll be okay. <laughs> I just don't know if Game of Thrones will. <laughs> oh, right? There you go, and, yeah. Uh, you know, so... Anyway, good. So maybe yep. just walk through your book, like if there's an overarching argument or whatever, what what would I expect if I if I bought and opened up this book? Yeah, so you asked originally why Ecclesiastes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, if, if you were to ask, you know, your, your typical kind of Christian philosopher or Christian thinker, what's, what's the most philosophical work in the Bible? It's probably the book of Ecclesiastes and maybe Job as a mm-hmm. runner-up, right? And if you were to ask, a theologian, what are their most misunderstood books or some of the most contentious ones where there's just been a whole lot of disagreement one way or the other? Uh, Ecclesiastes, as far as the Old Testament goes, that would be right up there, mm-hmm. right? There's just a whole wide kind of breadth of understanding of, of why this book is even in the Bible. Um, you have some people, uh, there's, uh, there was a couple of famous commentators that said this shouldn't even belong in the Bible in the last hundred years when they're looking at it. Why? Because it starts with meaningless like everything is meaningless and so the 
the reason I started getting into this was really to try to figure out how could you have an inspired writer in the Bible say everything is meaningless? What could he possibly mean? And whatever it is that he means, there has to be huge apologetic implications mm-hmm. for using this. Because when you look at uh, especially the last hundred years of thinking in the West, what's been a huge theme that's come up, but with the absence of God, we're just dealing with with a struggle with meaning, whether or not things really are meaningful in this world. And so the book really kind of walks through some of these topics. It begins with with a discussion on what meaning is, uh, defining the terms there. When we say life is meaningful or meaningless, what exactly do we mean and in what context? And then it just kind of goes through the subjects that Solomon slowly mm-hmm. goes through. Uh, work is meaningless, work, yeah. right? Wisdom is meaningless. So we talk a lot about science there. Human life is meaningless. And we kind of go all the way through there, just trying to see how in the world this inspired writer of the Bible could be saying that all these different things are meaningless and try to make sense of that, uh, given his complete biblical worldview, how he could be talking about this. And so how, how would that relate to 22 year old kid coming out of college trying to figure out life and I mean what 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 is the connection there apologetically that you see yeah so so one way of looking at about it is if you were to ask someone is life meaningful or is it meaningless and the person says it is meaningful my life has meaning then you have to ask the question well why mm-hmm. you know first of all what do you mean when you say that your life is meaning do you mean that it's just meaningful to you or that people should or that your life has value and meaning, even if no one else thinks it does. Mm-hmm. Those are two very different ways of thinking about it. And um, if it's the latter there, if you think your life has meaning, regardless of what, what anyone else thinks, why, right? And then that's the follow-up question. You have to explore these things. And especially then the question is, like, how could it possibly be meaningful if there's no God? Because that's historically been the source of talking about there being what in my book I, I define as cosmic meaning. The idea that, that in an overarching sense, regardless of separate individual minds' uh, opinions, does your life have meaning? Mm-hmm. Good. And so give me some, uh, give me some examples from, from art or literature or fantasy or whatever that you use. Like what's your favorite? I mean, give, give, give the audience a, a taste of, of what they would find in the book. What would be a good... Uh, uh, you know, Smashing Pumpkins song or whatever. What's your what's your favorite what's your favorite cultural reference that you made that that you thought really hit home? Yeah. So um, besides separate cultural references or you know uh, things within art or things like that, newspaper articles I draw on some of those or research psychology research things like that. I think uh, for example, if you're trying to talk especially about what do you mean when you say life is meaningful, right, or that something has meaning or value. There was this great newspaper article clip that I came across, uh, I don't know, a few, six, seven years ago, maybe. I don't even know what newspaper anymore. And the article said something to the effect of um, a man has just bought like one of those little Starship Enterprise, uh, I don't know, like little figurine ships, Mm -hmm. right? Made out of lead. He bought it at auction for (laughs) $35,000, $35,000. I think that's how much it was. Anyways, it's up there. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the actual article said at the very end, he said he was able to do this from 35 years of not dating. <laughs> and, and so you ask yourself, this Starship Enterprise, um, is a, how much is it worth, right? What's the actual value of that Starship Enterprise? And the answer is it's worth 35000 sure. right? Because that's how much this guy was willing to pay for it. But if he gets hit by a bus, how much is that Starship Enterprise worth? Um, all of a sudden it's not worth anything if there isn't anyone else around it. So that's one way of talking about this idea of short-term meaning, that we can call things meaningful in the sense that people put meaning and value into it. But as soon as you remove that person and that ego that has that value in the thing, you really are removing the idea of meaning or value from it, right? So in a lot of contexts, the way we think about meaning and value is dependent on the people that are putting meaning and value on it. And this doesn't just go for things, uh, but it also goes for ideas. It goes for discoveries. It goes for relationships even, right? This idea of short-term meaning. Okay. So do you contrast then short-term and long-term meaning? Is that like a contrast that you make? Like what would be the opposite of of the short-term 
maybe even we could call it relativistic meaning, right? I mean, is it, it's relative to the, the subject or. Yeah, yeah, it would definitely like relativism does play into that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, philosophers generally think in three terms, or at least I've, I found some that, that divide it into three different ways, short-term meaning, moral meaning and cosmic meaning. Okay. All right. And so the, the exact opposite of short-term meaning would be cosmic mm-hmm. meaning, right? That it's not something that's just kind of located within individuals, but instead there's some type of cosmic significance to it, regardless of what individuals think about it. Okay. Um, yeah. And is that, would that be fair? I, I'm tr- not to put words into your mouth, but subjective versus objective a little bit sort of thing. Like is cosmic meaning exactly parallel to what we call objective meaning or? Yeah, it's definitely okay. saying that. So the reason that something has objective meaning is because it has some sense of cosmic meaning, or at least that's the argument that okay. cosmic meaning gives objective value to things. So if you think of maybe like a baby holding her, uh, holding her child, yeah. right? And you ask that mother, you know, does, does that child have value? The mother's going to say, of course it does. Yeah. Now, if you ask that mother, does that child have value? Even if, even if there's no one around yeah. to value that child, yeah. does it still have value? Yeah. She's going to say, of course that child yeah. does. Yeah. Now the question is, if that child then has objective value, which is what the mother is basically saying, that it's got value regardless of anyone's opinions, what is that rooted in? Mm-hmm. And Solomon would say, um, under the sun, it's meaningless. That child has no, has no lasting value under the sun. But in a sense, over the sun, if we're th- seeing this thing, according to and the other huge concept in the book is the idea of a meta narrative. So mm-hmm. an overarching story that gives cosmic significance mm-hmm. to our events. All of a sudden that child has a whole lot more mm-hmm. value, especially within the Christian meta narrative and the Jewish meta narrative. So then the moral meaning, how does that play in then? Yeah. So this is uh, a lot of the ways that we talk about meaning. We're really using it in this moral sense. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you say that uh, uh, the purpose of life is, is happiness, right? Or something like that. Then what you're saying in effect is if you're not happy, you know, if you're not doing the things to make yourself happy, that you're somehow failing, right? Or you're doing something wrong, right? So maybe think, for example, a kid that's sitting around on a couch um, after graduating out of college and he's not doing anything with his life and he doesn't want to, right? He just wants to sit around, play video games and eat potato chips and watch Netflix. Now, don't, is don't, the, <laughs> don't we, don't we all <laughs> now, is that kid doing anything wrong? Yeah. Right. If your answer is the purpose of life is to go out and do things, right. Help people, mm-hmm. uh, get in relationships, you know, whatever it is, if you're saying that he's somehow squandering something, you're really making a moral statement mm-hmm. at some level you yeah. are, right. Yeah. You're saying there's something that he should be doing that he's not right now. And so ethics plays a big role into talking about the meaning of life. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. Um, so, uh, what else about the book that stands out to you that, I mean, I'm not asking you to brag a little bit, but here, but, uh, um, what else do you think, uh, you wrote and said, you know what, that, that was good. (laughs) (laughs) That like, I've been thinking about that a lot, lot and I'm and it. And when I put it on paper, it matched up with what I was thinking. I mean, I, I know we pastors, you know, we're, we're constantly thinking and then putting something out there, either whether speaking or writing it down. And there are big times like this is gold. And then I see it in print or, or I speak it yep. and I go, nah, something's missing there. But, uh, what, what, what else, uh, you think went well with the book that, that was, uh, going to be helpful to, to an audience? Well, I'm not too sure yet what went well <laughs> with the book. We'll find out, we'll find out but yeah. I'll, I'll share with you maybe a couple kind of epiphany moments, so to speak, um, that are, that are in it. So, so I really like the talk that you gave last night here with, with our university students. And one of the things that you talked about is that you believe that, um, that we're, we're made for epicness mm-hmm. is the phrase that you use. And I see that was in your title. And <laughs> we, is, did right? not, we did not plan this. <laughs> we did not. We, never, we have never had a conversation yeah. about epicness. Yeah. And, and you said this as well. And I don't know if you uh, made this up yourself. I hope you did because I'm going to be quoting <laughs> you from now on. But you said, if we, uh, if we don't have drama in our life, then we, we, we were made for drama. And yeah. so if we don't have drama in our life, we'll make drama, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so what exactly do you mean by that? I, I, I think that there is, this, there, there is a level that we all are going to, to put of importance and drama that we're all going to go up to. So, so 
one of the things that has always bothered me is, okay, so I'm living, I grew up in kind of a suburbia lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Like I was the poor kid. I wasn't poor, but I was a poor kid because I was a pastor's kid. Yeah. Lived in this, this suburban lifestyle. And, and then, but I certainly knew of and have had experiences um, with poor rural people and poor inner city people. And certainly I'm well traveled enough to have seen poverty in not third world countries personally, but second world countries. Yeah. Okay. So, and I think about that soccer mom in Waukesha, you know, compared to the mother in uh, the marketplace in, in, in Mexico mm -hmm. that I, you know, these are my two images and they're both full of angst and they're both full of this is important <laughs> and they're both worried yeah. and all of this kind of stuff. And I think that's probably universal. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how much, how much poverty you're in. Obviously there's going to be exceptions of people who have maybe given up on life and stuff, but generally the amount of drama is probably at the same level. Mm -hmm. And I want to look down at that soccer mom, mm -hmm. but I probably shouldn't mm -hmm. because she understands that she has an important role as being a mother, as being a citizen or whatever. And I, I you know, we kind of make fun of uh, some of our friends and relatives, maybe our acquaintances that live in that kind of world where like, you don't really know what suffering is. And yet they're still driven mm -hmm. for their children it just may be instead of, oh my goodness, we have to make sure that our kids get into a good school that's not violent. They're thinking, oh my goodness, my kid, if, if we don't sign up now, my kid's not going to be in ballet class, yeah. right? And and the drama's the same. And so I think we rise to this sense of importance because we know we're important and we know there's something better. Mm -hmm. And so whatever situation we are in, economically or whatever, um, we know we're important we know there's something better and and so we're going to we're going to go to that level i yep. think anyway does yep. that make sense yeah. yeah and so so i i agree with that entirely and one of the things then maybe that the book explores is where do you ground those ideas yeah. in, right so what's the foundation that would give someone the sense that they have some type of purpose right or something like that um, or that they're part of something much bigger. So maybe just one example. Is it, is it all right if I just uh, Absolutely. read Go ahead. just, um, this is from a, uh, so I'm a pastor and I was doing a bunch of research on addiction uh, for counseling purposes and things like that. And I came across this quote uh, by uh, the biology of desire, which was on addiction by a scientist named Mark Lewis or a psychologist. And so he's reporting on some research that was being done. And this is what uh, he writes. He says, Michael Chandler and his associates at the University of British Columbia canvassed native communities through much of Western Canada. What struck them almost immediately was the astounding suicide rate among teenagers, 500 to 800 times the national average, infecting many of these communities, but not all of them. Some native communities reported a low of zero true for six tribal councils to a high of 633 suicides per 100,000. So that's 633 per 100,000. That's, uh, that's, you know, getting close to 1%, right? Mm -hmm. What could possibly make the difference between places where teens had nothing to live for and those where teens had nothing to die for? The researchers began talking to the kids. They collected stories. They asked teens to talk about their lives, about their goals, and about their futures. What they found was that young people from the high suicide communities didn't have stories to tell. They were incapable of talking about their lives in any coherent, organized way. They had no clear sense of their past, their childhood, and the generations preceding them, and their attempts to outline possible futures were empty of form and meaning. Unlike the other children, they could not see their lives as narratives, as stories. Their attempts to answer questions about their life stories were punctuated by long pauses and unfinished sentences. They had nothing but the present, nothing to look forward to. So many of them took their own lives. All right, so that's a psychologist talking about addiction. Uh, well, it's a book about addiction, but he ends up talking about the importance of story. Yeah. And that if you don't have a sense of yourself in a story, this is tragic on a major level, right? This is, this is uh, a, a epic identity crisis that you go through to the point of when you're looking at areas like this, you know, suicide, right? Things right. like that. And my point is not in the book, 
become a Christian so that you don't commit suicide. Like that's the only solution, <laughs> right, right, or something like that. But it's it highlights the importance of story. And so you think, what's lost ultimately uh, when you uh, lose your Christian faith, right? So when you go from a person that is a Christian uh, to not a Christian, what is the thing that's getting yanked from you? The whole story of salvation is a story when we think about it. And this is the place that we anchor our values and who we are and our future and our past. You take that away and all of a sudden you're left with nothing, right? So this idea of being built for drama, I think this is, this is the case on a cosmic scale, right? That we understand not just our genealogy from, you know, what country in Europe we come from, right? Or something like that. But there's a reason that the Bible has genealogies that go all the way back to Adam. And that's because it's giving us the story that we belong to. Mm -hmm. And after the fall in different cultures, that's trying to get reinvented in so many different ways. But the one thing it all has in common is giving people some type of grounded story so that they have meaning and value. But you take those stories away, and all of a sudden, you've got meaninglessness and valuelessness, right? Yeah, and I think a previous generation of pastors, especially in our confessional Lutheran world, when they hear story, you know, their, their, their ears go up because they think it's not just a story, it's real. But we yep. don't mean that. We mean it's, yeah, it actually is a claim on reality as in a story. And, but to maybe our generation that has maybe started to see uh, the ramifications or at least have, have been able to look at a fully developed sort of postmodern, I'm thinking Derrida, Rorty mm -hmm. kind of uh, meta narratives, what does this mean kind of thing. Um, I, I think you can see that being played out. If there is incredulity to all meta narratives, yeah. what then happens to the psychology of the, let's not be st too stereotypical typical but the 22 year old male living in his parents basement kind yeah. of thing yeah so maybe maybe can you speak to that you know explain meta narrative the importance of meta narratives and and how meta narratives came under attack is that a good thing is that a bad thing um should we question those things go wherever you want yeah so the term meta narrative um there's there's very precise ways of using all these terms mm -hmm. in philosophy uh sometimes maybe it would be called better mega narrative or something like that. Mm -hmm. But the basic idea is um, if you were to read a book, but only like one chapter right in the middle of that book, how much of the rest of the book would you understand? Or how much of that chapter could you comprehend? Mm -hmm. If you read that single chapter right in there, you'd have no idea whether or not what the characters are doing is right or wrong, whether how it affects anything else. You have no sense of what's the impact or the value of anything that those people are doing. In a sense, it would be meaningless just mm -hmm. reading that one chapter without the rest of it the actions of the people in that single chapter are meaningless you really need the whole story in order to understand what the meaning of that single chapter is so now imagine that your life is a single chapter in a much larger volume how can you make sense of your actions as a human being without knowing the greater story and so the meta narrative is literally then this overarching narrative that all other narratives or stories it, fit it, within christianity even you could say evolution fits into that yeah. example as mm -hmm. a meta narrative um there you we could think of quite a few okay yeah and so there's there's some cool examples of this in literature where they where they hone in on this so um here's one cool example the play Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim. Have you ever seen this? No, I have not. Okay, so it's this play where uh, all the characters are fairy tale characters. So you've got I don't know guys like the baker and his wife, and and the wolf, and uh, Little Red Riding mm -hmm. Hood, and you've got a witch, and you've got knights chasing princesses and stuff like that. And the play is divided into two acts. In the first act, there's this narrator, and the narrator is telling the story about how all these individual fairy tales that were all familiar with how they all fit into a much larger story and by the end of the first act everything ends right like uh, everyone gets what they need and there's a nice happy ending to the end of the first act at the very end then of that first act in the beginning of the next one the narrator is fed to a giant and there's no longer a narrator for the second <laughs> half of the play and so in that second half 
all of a sudden, like the princes turn out to be misogynistic. The witch that, you know, was clearly bad in the first act is now morally ambiguous and everything starts falling apart and there's lots and lots of death. There's just lots of people dying by the end of it. And so then there's songs throughout it. You know, one of the main songs is a song that uh, I think the witch sings where she says, witches can be good, witches can be right. You decide what's good. You decide what's right. Mm -hmm. And the message that Sondheim sends is crystal clear that that narrator, as soon as the narrator is gone, and you find yourself in the woods, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the, the title of, of the week that I'm going to be doing, yep. right? When you find yourself in that postmodern woods, all of a sudden, then everything's fair game. But that also means all the value and meaning to everything that you're doing falls by the wayside as well, mm -hmm. right? There's no way to orient yourself. And so you just have, in Sondheim's play, a lot of people lost in the woods, not really figuring out what to do with their lives and at the end of it you just have this kind of very tragic picture of of people in the middle of a war zone not really understanding what the next step to do is so let's go back to solomon so yep. uh, solomon is is this playwright maybe who is saying <laughs> uh this is what happens yeah right i mean in in a very you know, uh, and meaningless, there's there's different concepts in, in those Hebrew terms throughout there, like the mist and vanity and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. You know, I mean, do you think that's what Solomon was finally after? So at some point you have to make an interpretive decision when you're looking at uh, Ecclesiastes, because mm -hmm. we have very little within the actual Bible to mm -hmm. go on to anchor things down. Um, uh, uh, a Bible-believing conservative Christian is going to say Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. He's the teacher that's mentioned in the very first verse. But the question is, when did he write it? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of scholars, and I think this is the only way to really make sense of the book, is that you're looking at Solomon writing this at the end of his life. Mm -hmm. And so he's looking back at his life. And you can read in Chronicles and Kings what that life was like and how after he got that wisdom from God, uh, he, he went into different pursuits where he just became the best of the best in all these different pursuits, making huge building projects, scientific uh, endeavors, right? Classifications of animals and all these types of things, getting super wealthy and getting lots and lots of sex and just going through all of the big kind of things that we measure mm -hmm. success by. He goes through all of these things systematically. If you just read through Chronicles and Kings about this and in the book of Ecclesiastes, he now looks back at all of it at all of it and says it's meaningless. Mm -hmm. Every now and then you'll, he'll say things like, uh, well, you can work hard and you should take pleasure in your work. But then right away afterwards he says, but it's all meaningless of mm -hmm. uh, chasing after the wind. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if Solomon is writing this at the end of his life and looking back, then what you have is you've got someone that is now soberly going through all of the things that he thought he could find meaning and value in. And he recognizes that it's all fleeting, that there was nothing anchoring it to it. Why? Because he had forgotten his God. Mm -hmm. And in my language, he's forgotten the meta narrative, the, of mm -hmm. that, that he's really a part of that gives him meaning and value. So do you think Solomon is saying, but now I, I understand my fault. I think I, so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cause there's, yeah. there's just a little bit of ambiguity at the end of Solomon's yeah. life. Like where did he stand faith? I mean, we're always thinking, well, yep. was he in or not? Did he believe or not? Yeah. You know, and maybe, mm -hmm. you know, we're not, we don't, we're not privy to his heart and we don't need to be, mm -hmm. you know, but that's, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't uh, quench our thirst. <laughs> and still everything that he says is true. Yeah. And that's the important part, right? So he ends that the, that the whole thing of the matter is fearing God, right? Mm -hmm. And he then goes through this, that very last chapter goes through different parts of life and situations in life that you find yourself. And all that really matters is that you're fearing God. And the way that, that we take that phrase, fearing God, um, in the robust, whole kind of biblical sense, mm -hmm. there's a lot that we put into that. Yeah. I see no reason that Solomon couldn't yeah. have had the same robust understanding that David did. Sure, right? fear, love, and trust. Yeah, I mean, yeah. right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, what, what are some, just to maybe put a bow on Solomon just a little bit, um, you know, what, what are some other interpretations of Ecclesiastes? And I'm not talking about far-reaching ones, although you could talk about that too, but, you know, well, let me ask you, maybe make it personal. Before this, you know, uh, thinking about this book and your work in campus ministry, how did you look at Ecclesiastes? What do you think was the standard way of looking at it? And how have you changed kind of thing? Oh, um, I think for, for a lot of it, I was probably in the same boat as most of us mm -hmm. were just didn't put a whole lot of 
time into Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really by getting involved in philosophy that I started thinking at all about the mm-hmm. book and about the phrases in it. Um, when you look at Solomon's works, so the idea of, of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Song of Songs, mm-hmm. the things that we attribute to to him mm-hmm. and how how beautifully they these are the practical books, but mm-hmm. they're also the most philosophical, mm-hmm. you know, that we would say in the Bible. Um, but because of that, I mean, any philosophy text, there's thousands of interpretations, mm-hmm. right, on how to how to understand what the author was really trying to do. And so it's no different when you've got someone that's 3,000 years old sure. um, or a work that's 3,000 years mm-hmm. old. And so there's just such a wide variety of different things. Um, it's popular now to say that there was no Solomon, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like that, um, that he certainly didn't write this work. It's a little, I think, a lot of scholarship, they're, they're at least on the same page that the same author wrote mm-hmm. uh, the whole work, that it's not, you know, just sure. pieces of things. Um, yeah. But in confessional Lutheran circles, yeah. um, in evangelical Christianity, uh, there's still a pretty good sense that we can just take it for who wrote it. Solomon, yeah. that's what it says in the first verse, you know, the teacher wrote this. Um Who's son the only David, person, yeah. yeah, son of David, who's the only person that fits this bill? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Ecclesiastes, and there's other ones too, just Old Testament poetry in general yep. is hard. Mm-hmm. But Ecclesiastes is not a long book. No. And it's actually different. I mean, like if you're going to slog through Lamentations or even Song Song of Songs, which is a little bit, it's it's different. Ecclesiastes still has its own kind of thing. I mean, there there are phrases in there that we know a chasing after the wind there's a time for you know those yep. kinds of things but i think ecclesiastes still remains a closed book to many of us yeah um, mm-hmm. just just hard but it know? doesn't have to be right which is, is interesting so tell me yeah. tell me tell me tell the audience who ecclesiastes is a closed book why doesn't it have to be and what 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 are some tips when you read it well part of it is it is besides sh- by short, your book right yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and for the record my book does not go through all the ecclesiastes it's mm-hmm. i mean i'm I, I never measured it, but I'm guessing it maybe does 20% sure. of it, you know, just a few segments of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was writing the book, uh, or when I was writing, you know, I did some Bible studies and, and uh, things for campus ministry before I even started on the book. And when I was researching Ecclesiastes, I just had the whole book on my wall. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's there right now, but line for line, mm-hmm. highlighting the repeated phrases, you know, mm-hmm. the famous ones and things like that. And as soon as you start kind of seeing that grand structure, mm-hmm. then then it starts to make a whole lot more sense, right? So you have to understand uh, what the phrase under the sun means, mm-hmm. right? If you don't see that as an important phrase in it, then the book's just not going to make any sense mm-hmm. at all. But if you understand what Solomon means by that, or at least what I, I, I'm almost certain he mm-hmm. means by that, when you're looking at life um, apart from any type of meta narrative, apart from any overarching God, but you're just looking at life as it appears to us, mm-hmm. um, as it just kind of empirically runs into us, uh, then all of his descriptions make sense. And we've all been there. Mm-hmm. That's the big thing where maybe after that big binge, uh, you're sitting back bloated mm-hmm. and you realize you know, just how much of a waste all of that was. Mm-hmm. And you can do that with everything that he's done. Same with studying, right? Um, uh, his pursuits after knowledge. Um, uh, academics know this feeling where, you know, you accomplish something big and then you kind of have this moment of, so, so, so what now? What's right? next? Yeah, yeah. There's a great onion uh, video on this where, <laughs> you know, it's like the fake news thing. It's a news show. And the, the reporters are reporting someone that just had spent seven years uh, in like South American jungles studying the anteater. And they're trying to get him to, you know, say something meaningful about this. And he's just got nothing. Right? He's got absolutely nothing because he realizes it was a waste of his life yeah. in some sense. Yeah. Um, and so you need that overarching structure in order to make sense of these things. Because obviously someone that's studying an animal for seven years, that is meaningful. Right. But it, it needs the right kind of context to give it meaning. Yeah. The moment you you put vocation into this, that's the game changer. Sure. Right. So, um, so the last chapter of the book is everything is meaningful, yeah. and that's the flip side, right? So the options aren't um, everything's meaningless and some things are meaningful. Yeah. The options are everything's meaningless or everything is meaningful, and that goes for not only 
uh, things like vocation, but suffering, yeah. uh, everything in life yeah. takes on cosmic meaning and importance once you put that Christian meta narrative of yeah. salvation over it all. Yeah, and it's kind of cool being lifted up. I mean, I, I use this phrase all the time, but it's from Gene Veith, lifted to a startling degree. Yeah, I mean mm-hmm. that's just that's just what it is. Yep. and even in my suffering. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, if I try to get there by myself and being curved inward. I'm just never going to be satisfied. Yeah. I'm yeah. Never, and, and Solomon takes it a, yeah. a step further and says, oh, it's even meaningless. Yeah. You know, Here, here's and, a, and only yeah. maybe only like I can go, I can say, okay, I need to have meaning in my life and in whatever, but it takes Solomon who, who really went to the extreme and everything and was successful yeah. and everything to utter the word meaningless and really mean it. Yeah. I don't know that I could get there cause I'm just kind of, you know, I, I, I have limitations anyway. Right. But Solomon didn't have any limitations as from our point of view. So, yeah, go ahead. Yep. Yeah. And so one, one good example of this is uh, I talk about this in the book as well. I watched this documentary. I think it was called The Overview Effect. And the point of the documentary was, was interviewing astronauts and how, so, I don't know, before the 1950s, let's say, um, or maybe think, so when you're growing up as a child, uh, what kind of understanding do you have of the world? Mm-hmm. Your house is really your world, you know, when you're like three, four years old or something like that. You've gone on some road trips mm-hmm. with your mom to the grocery store and mm-hmm. stuff like that, but your understanding of what's out there mm-hmm. is very, very limited. Your world is really kind of contained here. But you go through these different stages where um, your horizon expands, right? So you get to like the age when you get a bike. When you get that bike, mm-hmm. the world literally looks different from that sure. point on, right? And so the point of this documentary was, is that there's this effect that the world went through when we began to see our world from outside for the very first time. So from satellite pictures and Mm -hmm. things like that, when we saw our planet for the first time, even though we knew the world was round before, and even though uh, we... Speak for yourself. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Even though many people believe the world is... That the world is round, but from out there... All of a sudden, that perspective shift actually changes the way that we now think about mm-hmm. the universe and about space and things like that, right? Because the farther you move away, the context, just the way you understand the world changes. And the point of the movie was that this infuses now our view of the world with different meaning and value. Because once you really start picturing the world in your mind as this globe, everything becomes interconnected. And so they've got, you know... Uh, you know, there should be environmental consequences, you know, the way that we think, you Uh know, and all this kind of stuff. And it's no different with what Solomon's doing in my mind. So under the sun, when you're just down here rooted on the ground and you're just looking at life and the way that things are right now uh, in this kind of immediacy, uh, maybe on some level you think there's meaning, right? Mm -hmm. And you feel like there's meaning, but, but that's just not your real experience with it. Solomon wants us to be looking under the sun and to realize it for what it is so that when we finally get to that over the sun position, yeah. right? So where we have our own theological overview effect, mm-hmm. where you then begin to see things as they actually are from that transcendent perspective, then that all of a sudden just radically changes the way that you see things. And it changes everything the way that you see absolutely everything your relationships uh the experiences that you go through in life what you're doing with your life all of these things take on epic proportion Um, and it doesn't lead to desiring uh to uh, maybe like it doesn't have to lead to thinking there's more that i need to do with my life but it does have this vocation effect where now i understand that what i'm doing with my life right now matters. What seemed mundane is really part of a much larger story that the storyteller has placed in here for a purpose that he is working out uh, the salvation of this world through, right? Somehow this, what I'm doing has its part to play. Um, And it's important because of that. I've always, I I did a switch, uh, not a 180, but kind of a a epiphany moment about like Romans eight and all this kind of, you know, everything's and I always took took that as personal, like, okay, now I got to figure out why this bad thing happened. Okay, because you know it yeah. was very my my it was just my like you said I'm I'm this five year old in my my backyard's the the largest place that I've been into yep. or whatever, and uh, you know that that's got to be expanded to. I would I, this is probably a bad thing to say, but I always kind of thought about there's there's certain collateral damage when it comes to. Um, 
things that happen in the world, you know, so I, I dropped my keys and I, I lost them. And then I was late for uh, an appointment and, um, you know, I got fired or something like that. This yep. is the worst terrible thing. In the world. I have no idea that it may have been that um, I was not at that intersection when a bunch of teenagers blew the stoplight and could have ran me over. And it really wasn't about me. It was about them, you know, mm -hmm. and they're, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, just, just to get over ourselves just for a little bit, but that doesn't make me insignificant. And I think the way that you put it, especially with vocation, it, it doesn't make me insignificant. It actually makes me more significant. Right. Yeah. Because now I'm a part of something bigger than I ever thought I ever could be. Yeah. And I, and, and couldn't be as an individual. And I think this comes through in both, uh, in all types of literature, right? Uh, with non-Christian literature longing for this, in Christian literature, whether or not the author means it, it's implicitly built in that. And so, like, I'm, I know you're not the hugest fantasy fan, but think of something like, um, <laughs> so the a large part of Lord of the Rings, uh, this book written by Tolkien, yeah. uh, Catholic, a large part of it is that you've got these two figures, Frodo and Sam, they're hobbits, uh, they're the smallest, most insignificant people in this entire world that Tolkien's created, right? They're, they're really nobodies in a huge sense. And even in physical stature, they're nobodies, right? Yeah. And for most of the book, they are on a journey that no one knows anything about. There's a point after the first book where they're separated and then no one knows anything about what they're doing the entire time. And they don't even know if what they're doing is ultimately going to succeed or anything like that. They're just, they know that they've been given a job yeah. and they know that it's important and they're just going to carry it out. But they have no sense whatsoever of how this fits into anything anymore uh, for the entire rest of the book. And then at the very end of it, um, when they finally do succeed in their quest, they come back to the world praising them. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, these two insignificant nobodies that really for the entire book uh, were, were completely uh, ignored uh, for a real sense, uh, the significance of it all is bursted open. But it only comes afterwards when they understand what the whole story was. Yeah. And that's much of our lives right yeah. now is that we really have no idea, no idea what the significance is, what we're doing. But what we do know is that we've been given something to do, Yeah. right? Um, and we get hints of maybe that significance through the way that it does serve our neighbors, yeah. uh, the way that we do function as God's masks, yeah. but the actual extent of it, right? This sure. is something that something has been built into us to, to be able to dream and to know that there's something larger, even though we won't have any idea of it, right? Yeah. Until, until sometime later. And, yeah. and I, you know, th that's just so great because, uh, you know, just from a day to day, like when in doubt, then just do your job. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you yeah. know, mm -hmm. and, but also, um, we want to know, we want to know, we want to have this above yeah. the sun, whatever. Yeah. And, and the more, the older I get, the more I go, no, you don't. And the reason <laughs> for that is because if you get to that point and you go, okay, that's it. Mm -hmm. Then what? Mm -hmm. Like, well, now, now life is quite boring. Mm -hmm. Life is not whatever. Like, there's a reason God doesn't tell us when the last day is going to be. There's yeah. a reason God says you can't have all the information. There's there's a reason. Um, and, and if we could know everything, well, first of all, that would be a very puny God we have. Yeah. You know, but, uh, and, and I think the greatest mystery of heaven is, you know, how are we going to, how do we, the future, how do we think about the future if everything is so great in the present? Yeah. I just don't understand how that's going to work. That'll have to be a miracle. I well, don't know. I think this is why God gives us imagination, creativity on some level, right? It's because we're not going to be able to have this, yeah. but he has built in us the ability to dream this. Yeah. And so, um, like, uh, my dad thinks the next thing I should do after Ecclesiastes is revelation <laughs> because it's the exact opposite, right? Yeah. In Ecclesiastes, everything is meaningless. Under yeah. the sun, everything is meaningless. In Revelation, we are given the strongest language possible to show that everything is meaningful, <laughs> yeah. right? In the most cosmic ways possible. Yeah. I mean, it's just a sheer work of, of like trying to show your mind just 
how what this really looks like. You can't see it. Yeah. You know, you can't imagine it, but this is really what life is like. Yeah. Um, this, well, we could, yeah. we could use something like that, but boy, boy, that sounds like a that sounds like a, a nightmare of a project. <laughs> it does, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's very good. So, we got we have a few minutes left. I would like you to, if it's okay with you, um, we we are going to have you come out to Wisconsin Lutheran College, and uh, for two hundred bucks, which is a bargain, you're going to get uh, if you would come to be a student of of Pastor Thompson's. You get uh, a week long, uh, four more, five mornings and one afternoon of Into the Postmodern Wilderness. And I'm going to give you the card so you can remember what we wrote. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> walk me through what a student would expect during that, during that week. A lot of this, you've already mentioned a little bit, the concept of wilderness, um, but mapping, yeah. You know, talk about that. Where did that come from and why do you think it's so important and and who should come to a class like this? Yeah, there's this uh, interesting um, thinker, E.F. Schumacher. He wrote a small volume called Guide for the Perplexed. And uh, in it, the very first section, maybe the introduction, he says, he, ex- he describes this experience that he had where he was in uh, Leningrad and he had a map and he was trying to make his way around the city. But he was completely lost and he couldn't find where he was, even though he had a map right there in front of him and he was looking around, didn't know where he was standing. So he asked someone nearby, he said, uh, where am I? Can you show me on the map? And the person points to the map and says, this is where you are. And then Schumacher says, well, there's this big giant church mm-hmm. that's right there. How come that's not <clears throat> on the map? Because it's know? Leningrad at this <laughs> yeah. point, not yet. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's important, you know, and the person says, well, that's a dead church. Um, you know, uh, we only put living churches on the map, right? Um, the whole point being, and this was Schumacher's point, was that he had a map that didn't show him anything important, mm-hmm. any of the major landmarks in the city to make his way around, right? Mm-hmm. And his analogy here was this was what academia was like for him or his academic life going through grad school and things like that, is that he knew that there were certain things that existed. He saw them in the world around him, but yet in his classes, uh, he was being taught that they weren't on the map or they weren't important mm-hmm. enough to put on the map. And he was thinking more philosophical ideas, things like um, objectivity and mind-body dualism mm-hmm. and things like that. But I think that's a great model, especially when you kind of bring it into this idea of being into the woods in that kind of Sondheim sense, mm-hmm. where we find ourselves in in a world right now where, especially in the academic world, we are we find ourselves in a wilderness and we're told that the most important ideas to us don't exist Mm -hmm. or they're not worth talking about, or we can't talk about them. And so some of those ideas are going to be the things that we talk about in this class. So really kind of the idea. So for example, of evil, right? Does evil exist? Uh, So working through things like the problem of evil, talking about is mind body dualism important for, Mm -hmm. for a Christian, right? Is this in some way uh, important? You know, the fact that virtually all, Christians before now believed this, and now we're told that it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Is this in some way something that has a deep effect on our faith, or is it okay that that's off our map at this point? One of those big things is going to be meaning, so we'll talk about that as well. Mm-hmm. The idea that there is such a thing as objective value and that things can have cosmic meaning, that's for the most part off the map as well. Um, and so part of our job is going to be, over the course of the week, kind of putting these things back on our maps so that we can orient ourselves in this world and be able to put these things back on the maps of other people as well. Yeah, I would suggest, I mean, for every pastor out here, no matter if you're engaged in college, campus ministry or not, this is going to be, I think, would be a game changer for you. I know that when I got out as a pastor, I, I knew that I could feel that something was missing. I had a fine, we had a fine education, mm-hmm. um, but we were a little light on philosophy. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's reasons for that historically. And, um, I had everybody, everybody was saying, Oh, those existentials and those postmoderns. And I go, (laughs) yes, those are terrible people. I'm like, what are, what are they? Who are they? What what is this? And so I try to read myself into it and I, and I needed a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that is the main reason why I went back to school because I needed someone to teach me. I couldn't just read myself into it. And uh, you have had a teacher. You've got. You've done the the philosophy at Marquette, and you and you have also read yourself into it. And this week long course, 
I think would be super helpful. And and you you had turned uh, Carrie onto the Schumacher book, and Carrie and I read it together and yeah. discussed it. And so very helpful. The mapping thing mm-hmm. is very helpful. Yeah, it talks about the chain of being uh, and all that uh, kind of stuff. It, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and it's simple and it's easy or whatever. I just encourage, uh, especially our pastors out there, but if you're teaching high school kids mm-hmm. in any shape, way, or form, or college kids, if you're just a person who likes to think, this is the this this would be such a good. I don't want to say a primer because it's not not that way, but in a way it would be like the priming of the pump to get you thinking about these things. And here, here's something to explore. Here's some probably some resources. And and if you don't think these things are important, like let me prove you yeah. wrong, right? Because we're going to be talking about maybe the political implications yeah. of these things. So for example, mind-body dualism has huge implications on transgenderism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of objectivity and relativity, we'll go through that type of stuff. Huge things in regards to the call-out culture mm-hmm. and, and uh, social justice movements yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's got just tremendous implications today. And that's why I've spent so much time on this is because I'm dealing with this with my university mm-hmm. students every day yeah. right now. Um, and they need this kind of biblical worldview reinforced for them to not get lost in this wilderness. And I think what's very helpful and has been helpful to me and why, why I, I'm more and more can't just read myself into it. I need to hear people speak is I may have, I may have good instincts about what's theologically right and wrong, but to hear somebody say it and explain it helps me then speak it yes. correctly. Yep. Mm-hmm. So come listen helps to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, come, come listen to pastor Thompson and, and, and hear uh, a way to talk about these things without sounding like a moron. <laughs> I mean, because it's, there's a any goal. Yeah. It's, it's a different set. It's, it's a different vocabulary. Yeah. It's a different vocabulary. And then, but those different vocabularies should never be something that should scare us. We just need to have somebody explain those terms to us and these bigger concepts and make it, you need a teacher, you need a teacher. So, and so part of the, part of the way that we do campus ministry here in Ottawa, one of the goals very clearly stated is we want our students to be able to talk intelligently mm-hmm. about these topics, right? So that when people are talking to them, they find a Christian that is intelligent, right? Mm-hmm. That sounds uh, worth their time, right? To a certain level. Now, obviously you don't need that in order to evangelize, in order to witness and to, to do things. Um, but God has given you a brain, <laughs> right? Uh, there's a vocation to yeah. this as well. Yeah. And I think uh, we probably would be on the same page with this, that, uh, for a couple generations, uh, Christianity has almost seemed to revel, especially on the conservative side to revel in being dumbed down Mm -hmm. and being corny. I, I only, uh, half jokingly say, was there like a, was there like an evangelical sort of Vatican II type thing where they got together and said, from now on, let's make everything as corny and shallow as possible. This will work, yeah. you know, and yep. then the 70s and the 80s and you go, I, I you know, I, I think we're going to um, reap some really bad stuff that yeah. we've sown, that we've sown here. And I think there is a huge drive. And I know you, you mm-hmm. see this with your students and I see this with, with my students in a different con- uh, context, of course, but just to drive for something substantial in their yeah. life, anything that mm-hmm. is deep. So um, just pastors out there, if you can, if you can pull this off, I, I really think that this would be beneficial for you. So I'll give you the final word before we close. Oh, um, about anything. Yeah. <laughs> about anything. Oh, there was something that I thought was going to sound halfway smart <laughs> and have totally forgotten what it was. Um, why should I buy your book? Why should you buy my book? Um, if anything, if you're a Christian, uh, why should you buy my book? It might give you some ways of talking to your non-Christian friends and being able to pull in different topics, uh, different areas of culture um, to talk to them about these types of things. Oh, this is what I was going to mention. Um, there's a huge movement today, especially we're being told guys in their twenties, right. And things like that. So you're thinking, uh, like the kind of big Jordan Peterson crowds and stuff like that. And there's a huge Renaissance movement right now for great books, clubs Mm -hmm. and things like that, where you have uh, young people 
people in their 20s and 30s that all of a sudden want to read things like the Iliad and the and the Odyssey and Plato and get together and read the great books of the Western. Which is painfully predictable. Yeah. You know, when, when you had a generation that was told stems everything. Exactly. And whatever. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so... So this vacuum that you've talked about, right, it's getting filled now, right? Uh, and the question is, are you going to be able to talk to the people that are filling that vacuum, right? Are you going to be able to find ways of, of sharing your faith and the meta narrative of what Christ has done for you in this world? Are you going to be able to share that with now these, these droves of people that are looking for conversations about meaning? And so this book, I think, is a useful way of starting that conversation with yourself. And I, you know, and maybe we'll open up a, a book like Ecclesiastes mm-hmm. that uh, that was maybe closed to you, and from there probably we'll open up many other books too. So I, I think it's uh, about 150 pages. 150. When's yep. it going to be on on sale? Uh, it's on sale right now right. in the in the states, and uh, we're working to try to find some way of making it more available in Canada. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll just you just have to. <laughs> <laughs> sell them yeah. off, off the you know, internet by yourself I, I suppose know. just yeah. get a big one so <laughs> anyway um, excellent I thank you so much for this this is really good hey this really is fantastic and w- thank we'll, you Mike we will do this again uh, when you come when you come in June uh, to Wisconsin so until then I hope that uh, you know despite uh, we, we're in the middle of the uh, coronavirus uh, epic pandemic apocalyptic whatever um, um, until then I while all of our freedoms are being taken away, I hope you still let the bird fly. <laughs> Every evening when the sun goes down, get through my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a tank. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. One more round. Get me down. Came home last night, all full of lush. My babe began to fuss, and I said, honey, hush. I don't care what the 